0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, March the 14th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the Hoover Studio, deep in the heart of Stanford University's campus, Dr. Michael J. Boskin. Dr. Boskin is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Tolly M. Friedman Professor of Economics at Stanford. He is also a research associate, National Bureau of Economic Research. In addition, he advises governments and businesses globally. Michael Boskin served as chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, CEA, from 1989 to 1993 when he helped resolve the Third World debt and savings and loan financial crises. His CEA was rated by the Council for Excellence in Government as one of the five most respected agencies in the federal government. Dr. Boskin, it's an honor to have you on the show today.
1: My pleasure, Bill.
0: So I did a little homework on the CEA. There have been 29 chairs of the Council of Economic Advisers dating back to August of 1946. That includes you, your Hoover colleague, Eddie Lazier. That also includes a few people by the names of Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, Ellen Greenspan, and Arthur Burns, who would go on to serve as chairmen of the Federal Reserve. The CEA, Mike, has one chair, two members, 11 senior economists. Why is it important?
1: Well, the CEA was set up by the Employment Act of 1946 as a vehicle for getting objective economic advice inputted to executive branch decision-making. Uh, later on, the Congressional Budget Office was supposed to serve that purpose uh, in, uh, to some extent, in, on the congressional side. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, generally done a good job of that. Uh, at times, it's been uh, uh, heavily politicized. Uh, at one point, uh, it was almost abolished, and as you mentioned, Arthur Burns, he. Uh, adopted the view for Eisenhower that he was not going to be out giving advice to everybody in the world but he was the president's advisor and he did a great job of restoring the credibility of the CEA Uh, but since then the uh, influence of the CEA has ebbed and flowed but it goes on not just at the level of the chair speaking to the president which I had the privilege of doing uh, for four years but also the members have a lot of influence at sub-cabinet-level uh, interagency working groups, and as do, the mem- as do the senior staff. So the CEA, ha- uh, I think, does a good job of promoting good policy, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, does a very good job of preventing really bad policy. And unless you've been in the government and you see a lot of the ideas that are floated and fortunately, eventually get rejected, you can't imagine some
0: of the screwy and uh, damaging ideas that have to be put to rest. Would you care to give us an example or two from your days back in the Bush 41 White House?
1: Well, for example, when we were doing our national energy strategy, someone had the bright idea of requiring every light bulb in the United States to change in, almost instantly. When we were doing the Americans with Disability Act, someone had the, bri- the, bright, the quote, unquote, bright idea of requiring every entrance to every building in the United States being wheelchair accessible. Right. So while trying to do good things in that area, there was just a lack of common sense in balancing the potential gains to the huge costs. So now we have a lot of wheelchair accessible stuff. It's a, a wealthy society ought to be doing some things at least to help its disadvantaged citizens. But the notion that we're going to retrofit every single building and every single entrance to every single building in the United States was nutty. Those are a couple of extreme examples, but Mm -hmm. you have people who have strong views on this, represent a constituency, and get some leverage. And uh, so those are some things where you have to point out that some sensible cost-benefit analysis
0: or risk-benefit analysis has to undergird public policy. So these are ideas floating around the West Wing of the White House and then they come through CEA and you have to look at it and look at the economic
1: yeah, impact? Yeah, they, they can originate in cabinet agencies. Right. They can originate in some, uh, somebody working in the White House. They can originate in some congressional uh, or senatorial office and work its way through contacts in the executive branch and all of a sudden because you're dealing with something with a deadline or something that uh, is addressed to other things that this all of a sudden shows up as a rider. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I think it's important. I'll give you an example of something that was very constructive. Uh, when I was CEH chair, we were dealing with the Clean Air Act amendments to the, uh, uh, of 1990. And uh, economists have long thought that more market-oriented incentives, emissions trading, or bagovian taxes and subsidies, beat command-and-control Soviet-style regulations, telling every factory exactly how to do everything. But set a goal, give them flexibility how to achieve it. So we worked out uh, something in in our uh, in our interagency process to include that to reduce the cost of more stringent environmental regulation, right. and the ex. Uh, we eventually got it passed, in, input into the law, got it passed and uh, had a um, ex-post evaluation saying you reduce the cost by over 50% for, for uh, achieving those envi- tougher environmental standards. Now I'll give you an example of something that went on beforehand. Uh, we had an interagency process, the president had made some decisions, uh, we had those arguments, we gave him options, he made the decisions. But uh, then he got an Air Force One to go to an international meeting, and uh, all of a sudden on my desk shows up the first draft of the Clean Air Act amendments from the the EPA. And unfortunately, they just didn't do what the president had decided. And so I obviously got a little irritated at that and uh, called uh, our administrator, and he brought his staff to my office and said, what's going on here? And his staff person said, "We, we wrote it to be consistent with the Clean Water Act. I said, but the president isn't deciding anything about the Clean Water Act. This is the administration's position. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got the president on the phone on Air Force One. He put on his chief of staff, who could be a tough customer when he wanted to. Mr. Sununu. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he read the Riot Act in colorful language (laughs) to the EPA administrator, and it was changed. Okay, And then then that same thing that they had done wound up, they tried to get it in through the back door in Mm -hmm. congressional amendments, et cetera, and changing the stuff. But we kept it in, and I had so, – so in order to avoid all that, the President set up sent up a statement of administration position, which is a common thing for the White House to do, mm-hmm. saying this is what he'll accept and what he won't accept. And uh, we removed the ability to cost the thing from the EPA because nobody trusted the EPA's cost estimates. They were very self-serving and the CEA would cost it, and anything costing more than $10 billion would be rejected. So I use that, that could be used as leverage to get more flexibility and more sens—more sensibility mm-hmm. into it, into what was, in essence, tougher environmental regulations to try to balance the environmental gains and the economic costs.
0: That White House also was involved in tax negotiations with a Democratic Congress, if I yes, recall correctly, absolutely. as the president negotiating with, with George Mitchell and Dick Eppard, right? Uh, yes. What was the CEA's role in those negotiations?
1: Well, we were uh, tasked with trying to get some estimates of the cost. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were, um, I had during the campaign as I was helping President, future president, then vice president George Herbert Walker Bush, develop something called the flexible spending fees, trying to deal with the budget deficit on the spending side, but some flexibility. You could increase spending on one item if you decreased it on another. Right. And uh, which is not something I thought was both very common sense uh, economics, the, the research shows that um, controlling the growth of spending is, uh, is much better for the, both the long-term and short-term health of the economy. Uh, the ability to get the budget back in some semblance of control is far more often achieved on the spending, successfully achieved on the spending side than the tax side in all the OECD countries. There's a lot of evidence from that. Albert, Alberto Encina's work, at uh, Alasina's work at Harvard uh, on OECD data, for example, shows that. Um, so I thought it was good economics. Also, I think it was sensible politically. Uh, but the Democrats had uh, a large, large majority in the House and the right. Senate. And uh, the President, in the end, agreed to a small tax increase, uh, a much larger uh, control over discretionary spending. And those pay-go rules. Uh, you couldn't um, add to entitlements without offsetting it somewhere else. And the caps on discretionary spending held and worked uh, for many years after George H.W. Bush left uh, office. Uh, they were extended under Bill Clinton. But then when the government briefly ran a budget surplus, all the discipline evaporated. So that was our main role. Um, we did not do much negotiating. We, we took some of the tax provisions and tried to improve them uh, by decreasing the harm they would do to the economy, by uh, dealing with how the Treasury would uh, interpret various rules and regulations. Uh, if so there's that sort of thing, but our advice was to deal with this on the spending side of the budget. Um, but the president made his decision that he needed to do this,
0: and uh, it probably was one of the things that cost him re-election. Uh, You mentioned the politics of of the matter. As the chair of the CEA inside the White House, you obviously are tasked with providing economic guidance to the president, but there's a side of you that also sees the political value or or hazards in doing an act. How vocal is a CEA chair within the White House?
1: Uh, Often quite vocal, Mm -hmm. uh, but usually the other people in the White House uh, uh, who have direct uh, responsibility for the politics and the communications and the congressional uh, liaison and negotiations and affairs mm-hmm. don't like the um, CEA chair butting in. Right. So there's ways to do, there's ways to get your influence inputted into that. Mm-hmm. For example we write the economic report of the President and the report of the Council of Economic Advisors, which is goes to all the agencies and before it's published and gets comments etc. So you can write in certain things and get the president to agree. This is his position. This is his principle. And if it's not being followed, you can use that to, uh, right. to try to discipline uh, others in the, in the executive branch. Uh, it's not popular when you're saying to somebody you think they're not doing their job right when you say mm-hmm. you think they got the politics wrong. So, right. for example, I did that often. Uh, we had a mild recession. Uh, all recessions are bad, but by historical standards it was mild. Uh, But it basically came about because Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, the price of oil, when oil was much, much more of it was imported than today, and there was much less flexibility in the economy to changes in oil prices. Uh, The price of oil soared, and simultaneously we had, uh, a few months before that, we had the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the end of the heavy Cold War, the, Mm -hmm. the deep freeze Cold War. And it was very clear there was going to be some pressure on the defense budget. There was already pressure from the Democrats who wanted to reduce uh, the military spending to free up spending on other things, uh, programs they supported. Mm -hmm. And those two things caused, uh, in addition to a credit crunch that had been uh, involved with the savings and loans problems and the Third World Debt of the Money Center banks, all of which were insolvent mark to market because the um, Miguel de la Madrid, the president of Mexico, repudiated Mexico's foreign debt. All the money center banks in New York, the popular names that we hear now, Mm -hmm. many of the result of mergers or several of them because of these problems, wound up holding a lot of that debt which was then devalued. So we did Brady bonds to deal with that and the Resolution Trust Corporation to deal with um, with the savings and loans. And they, I think, by historical standards and especially for government work, did, did pretty well. Now there was a slowdown and then a brief recession, uh, and it was predictable from the combination of the credit crunch, the defense drawdown, and the oil price hike. And in fact, we predicted it before we had any data showing the economy shrank, which is apparently rare uh, in uh, in CEA history. Uh, but as a matter of fact, what we tried to do was to get the point across that we needed to do something. Uh, in the recession. Uh, because the Democrats controlled such a large majority in the House and Senate, it was very unclear they weren't going to do the kinds of things we might favor. Right. Uh, I had proposed, in, you know, uh, reducing taxes on investment and jobs in various ways, and uh, they would want to just increase spending, and we already had a large deficit in, in, in a long expansion. so. We did some things um, administratively. The Treasury changed its withholding tables because people were massively overwithheld, and we reduced that so we got some more cash into the economy. But there was a, there was a slowdown. They didn't much like the idea of me saying that the economy was in recession. Right. Me, you know, and we predicted it would recover about more, more or less within one quarter of when it did. But they wanted the president to be optimistic, and I said, well, I think instead of a binary choice between be optimistic or pessimistic, he's got to be realistic about the present and optimistic about the future if his policies are followed. And they didn 't like that construction, but I thought the president was getting a lot of bad uh, a lot of bad p r being right. painted as out of touch and so on, and I thought that was extremely harmful to him, uh, so I made that. That case vociferously,
0: and that was not uh, popular in some other quarters in the White House. Right. Uh, you also could have had the Richard Darman approach to public relations. <laughs> Richard Darman, the head of OMB, who was famous for calling up the Washington Post and venting his frustrations and doing the obligatory Washington thing that, you know, they'd be better off if they listened to me.
1: Well, um, there certainly were in our administration and others, and uh, there's been a lot of talk about it reaching yep. a new height in the Trump White House. Uh, uh, of people leaking and uh, doing self-service, uh, self-serving alliances with uh, with the media, hoping to get some good publicity and reflecting better on themselves. Um, I always thought that that was um, inappropriate. I, when I was asked to, I uh, had uh, conversations about specific things with the media. Otherwise, I generally thought my job was to provide accurate information about the economy, clear up misunderstandings about the economy, mm-hmm. and to support the president and his policies. when uh, when he had decided something that was uh, that was against my advice, uh, you know I had basically anyone in this kind of job has two choices. If you think it's so so much against your advice that you can't participate in the administration. You should then quietly resign and not do, anyth- in my view, not do anything self-serving, but leave. Right. Or you can live to fight other battles and uh, and you know be a team player. But I tried not to be out front, and I never ever deliberately said anything that I thought was untrue. I just mm-hmm. wouldn't draw. The- I drew a line there, and uh, or I thought maybe even worse than more stringent than that, inaccurate um but there were a variety of uh of times so i would say uh you know i really got started in um presidential politics and go- and governance with president reagan and president uh, george hw bush and president george w bush i advised clinton a teeny bit on a couple of things on i went around the country with them on social security forum which unfortunately uh, for him and for the country uh, went down the tubes with Monica and he Mm -hmm. needed the left wing base of his party to survive. But um, in all of that, um, I would say for for
0: Reagan and George H.W.
1: Bush, I agreed with 80% of what they did.
0: Right, I want to get back to the economy in a second, but while we're talking about the Bushes, I'd like to answer something I've been dying to ask you for a long time, and that is the relationship between George W. Bush and the Hoover Institution and your observations of the two George Bushes. The story is that George W. Bush is lining up to run for president, and he wants to come to the Hoover Institution and meet the fellows and make his case for running for president. Did he call you and ask you to make the introductions?
1: We had a discussion. Yes, he did. We had a discussion, and we had a discussion of what would be best. And I thought the best thing for him, because inevitably something would come out about it, or he might want to have something come out about it, would be to do something at George Shultz's home. And the reason I suggested that was in 1979, George Shultz had a a small conclave, myself, Milton Friedman, a few other people at his home, to meet Ronald Reagan and talk about um, his views. And by the way, Reagan was a very impressive guy. Maybe that's obvious now, but of course he was derided during the campaign and his presidency of just being an actor reading lines but he had a he had a pretty sophisticated view of a lot of economic issues Mm -hmm. Um, in any event um, so so George W uh, and I had that discussion and so we arranged for him to come to uh, to California for a day it was uh, in April of 98 he was running for re-election as governor of Texas right and he was um, so all the conversation was, he doesn't know if he's going to run. Let's treat this. Well, if he eventually did decide to run, what would he need to it's know? It's a big hypothetical. But, right, yeah. Right. And so we ar- I arranged a lot of uh, a lot of background material for him, and we had uh, Condi and uh, John Taylor and a variety of other people you know, who served in his administration a variety of others who didn't. We had uh, seven or eight or nine people, and we went through a variety of things. You know, I gave up economic briefing and a bunch of stuff on the budget and taxes and John Taylor talked about monetary policy and uh, etc and we had some discussion of international affairs cool. um, and I flew down with him after the meeting uh, he came came to our house uh, Chris in my home and then we, I flew down with him to uh, Monterey because he was giving a talk to the Lincoln Club there right. and on the plane he said that it was just really really terrific because it did a great deal for his confidence because he had had some exposure to this through his father and his general concern, but as governor of Texas, he was dealing primarily with right. Texas issues. But he felt he could hold his own a like that. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. And he got a very favorable response from people that he asked very good questions. Um, he was willing to admit something he didn't know, mm-hmm. which takes a certain amount of self-confidence. Uh, right. There are a lot of people who are. And maybe even especially academics who don't do that. <laughs> and so I think it really uh, it really was a very good thing for him, and he met a lot of people, and they got comfortable with him. George, I think, eventually became an honorary co-chair of his campaign or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Condi, obviously, had a distinguished career in his administration as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. And uh, and John Taylor served as Under Secretary of the Treasury, both of, both of whom, by the way, did
0: fabulous jobs. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to go back in.
1: Well, I told him early on that um I thought it was not a good idea for uh him to have me uh because other than on a, because I was associated too, too with his father. associated with 41 he, just right. as a political and communication strategy he needed to he need to be his own person. Yeah. Right? And you know while I you know I care a lot about my country and if the president of the United States asks you to do something and you think you can do it well, and he thinks you're the right person, mm-hmm. you've had to seriously consider that. It's hard to say no to something like that but i I suggested to um, to the to then candidate Bush and then subsequently President Bush and Vice President Cheney that um, they shouldn't offer me a job i could uh, that I could say no to because I didn't want to say no to them right well
0: put of course, he did pick his father's defense secretary as his vice president, so there was a little yeah. overlap
1: but The economic side uh, for George, H.W. Bush was more controversial in the Republican Party because of the small tax increase, Mm -hmm. which was kind of split the party. And I thought that it was important, even though I I had opposed it,
0: I think it's important that
1: he not be associated with that, that he have a
0: clean break. So what do you say when people ask, okay, you've advised 41, you've advised 43, what, what do they have in common, and what's the difference between the two?
1: Well, they have a variety of things in common, a variety of differences. Um, George H.W. Bush had spent a very large part of his life post his Texas oil days in public life. He was a congressman. He ran for senator. He was the CIA director. He was an envoy for China in the opening up to China. He was uh, vice president. So he had been around policy for decades, thought a lot about it. He'd been an economics major at Yale. That is not commonly uh, written about him for whatever reason. Um, and he knew a lot of economics, but his love was foreign affairs, international affairs, security, and, and, uh, and national defense. Um, so I think if you look at some of the things that happened and you compare them to other situations where that happened, okay, we had uh, a recession We had twin financial crises. We had um, environmental uh, legislation. We had uh, a pressure to uh, draw down the military. We had um, the opportunity to uh, deal with uh, liberalizing trade, regionally and globally. And I think if you look at how he did on those, he gets a a really great score. On foreign affairs, he handled the decline of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall masterfully, in my opinion. It would have right. been very easy, and politically to his advantage, to gloat about it. We won, you lost, ha ha, you know? Mm-hmm. But he understood great restraint. I'll give you a, an example of that. So in the post, um, in, in this post-fall of the Berlin Wall period, um, Gorbachev had been trying, previous to that and shortly thereafter, to invoke perestroika and glasnost, political and economic opening up. Mm -hmm. And they had not the slightest idea of what a market economy was like. Um, So they sent, uh, uh, Gorbachev sent uh, Evgeny Primakov, who subsequently became premier of, of Russia. And now, I think he just passed away, but he then became under under Putin, he's a former KGB guy, he became head of the Chamber of Commerce of Russia, so it tells you something about the <laughs> Russian economy. In any event, um, so Bush was Bush Sr. was getting phone calls daily from John Major, the Prime Minister of the UK, Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, and Francois Mitterrand, the President of France, saying we have to bail out Gorby, we can't lose Russia, This is a great historic time. So he sends over Primakov and... Um, uh, who has a couple of people with him, Gregory Yavlinsky uh, and a couple of others, and they're trying to negotiate that we're going to do all this stuff for them. And so I, so I I arranged to get put in charge of that, which is highly unusual. It's probably the only high-level international conference like that's ever occurred in the CEA chairman's office because the Treasury and State Department had very different views about this. The yeah. Treasury was still interested in getting reimbursed for its czarist bonds. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The State Department was kind of uh, more prone to want a, uh, you know, something like the Berlin airlift. Um, so that's those are exaggerations, right. but I'm right. using hyperbole to make a point. So the president put me in charge, assisted by the deputy secretaries of State and Treasury, and a great young staffer on the National Security Council staff, Condi Rice, who was a Russian expert. But I called my old friend George Shultz and said, "You've negotiated a lot with the Russians. Give give me some advice." And he said. Well, you have to push them because if they haven't threatened to walk out a couple of times, they, uh, they're not serious. Mm-hmm. So we're doing this, and, uh, you know, we go through kind of this, you know, introductory uh, discussion and charade. And, uh, you know, they're telling us about, well, they really don't need help, but if we really want to, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. So, so if you don't really need help, what are you doing here? Well, we really could use some assistance on this and on that. And it's sort of like the person with the trench coat opening it up, and he's got a list of exactly. things, illicit stuff you can buy. So he wants us to put in money for this and help them build this and do that. And so I'm saying, so, um, so the first thing I say, so you, so you, uh, so I hear you've built housing to re-garrison the Russian soldiers out of East Germany back into the Soviet Union. He said, yes. I said, how's that going? I said, it's almost complete. I said, good. We'd like to come inspect it. And he, you know. Said this is outrageous! How dare you! And threatened to walk out. So we got the thing back going again. And they f- along, along further, I did this a second time. This is so you you say you have your your credit's good. You have all this gold, but you're separating the Commonwealth of Independent States. So who owns what? How much will Russia own right. the Azeris, the Kazaks, etc. And the Georgians and uh, he, you know and, and you say it's pure gold, but you know a lot of gold isn't so pure. So we're gonna have to inspect that and figure this out. And, and even after all that, we got down to it. So I had to go talk to the president the second day at lunch to give him my readout, and then he was going to meet uh, with um, with Primakov, and then you know inform his colleagues, and then uh, Gorby what we were going to do. So uh, you know, so it was me and the president, the national security Advisor, and uh, I said. Um, so he asked me what I thought, And I said, "Well, I think they haven't the slightest idea what's really going on in their economy. It's going to be chaotic for a long time. It's going to be un- part of it will be popular, part of it will be unpopular. There's going to be a lot of people uh, made very poor uh, all of a sudden, and uh, they're going to need to do a lot, and it's going to take a while if they don't backslide into some authoritarian regime. And um, and he said, "Well, what do you think about their proposals?" I said, "Well, I think we should minimize what we do." Because we'll never know where the money goes. It's likely a lot of it will be stolen and misplaced or misused. Um, and uh, you know, we, our farmers want—you know—are pushing to have huge amounts of our grain dumped on them, which will destroy their agriculture by collapsing prices. So we need to—we can—we can do some small, sensible things showing we're trying to be supportive. But there's only one case in which I could—I could—I could, uh, I could, I could uh, counsel you to. To ask Congress for the $100 billion that everyone's suggesting we do, that Cole and Mitterrand and Major are suggesting we do. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, you, you know, you're not going to want to hear it. And I said, well, tell me. And I said, well, obviously if they agree to decommission their nuclear weapons we should pay the price. And he said, you're right, if word got out that it was even raised, Gorby would be gone in 30 seconds. Right. So he showed great restraint in that regard. I think he was a master of that. Uh, we had a Gulf War Okay, you may remember the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. It's not only a long time ago; it only lasted a very brief, a very brief time. Right. Uh, it was an overwhelming success. It reinvigorated our military's prestige in the country. Uh, it was done masterfully.
0: I remember the parade and, in Washington.
1: And it was done, and it was done with our French and Russian and British allies, right. uh, and with the support of the Arab country, the other Arab states, and we got Congress. To, agree to, to vote to uh, agree to it. And it didn't cost the American taxpayers a dime. We got our allies to pay the entire cost, okay? So compare that to what's happened subsequently. Now, there were bigger challenges post 9-11, so sure. I'm not suggesting sure. that they're the same thing. But so that was the kind of thing he did. And uh, he did some creative things. I mean, I think if we had not resolved the savings and loan of third world debt of the money center banks, we would have had a much larger financial crisis, perhaps not as large as ultimately happened in 2008-09. But uh, and if you look at the total cost of the bailouts, et cetera, uh, uh, where we acquired assets and sold them back off, uh, it was probably a third of what was involved um, in 2009. It would have been much larger if we hadn't done that. So I think it did a lot of good things. I think. The tax increase, I think, had a small negative impact on the economy. It had a large negative impact on his politically. Mm-hmm. And I think we did a good job of putting in these budget rules, but we couldn't get agreement on entitlements. And it was always our intention to go back to entitlements right. after the election if we were able. And um, and the fact that those held up, and we did put in this PAYGO rule as a marginal balanced budget rule. You can't, wherever the deficit is now, you can't add to it or. Without offsetting it somewhere else, mm-hmm. so I think on that score he did a very good job. Now I also think Reagan, who I advised and uh, helped prep for his debates and uh, and continued to advise throughout, was um, you know literally a transformative uh, figure in American history. Uh, right. I think Bush uh, did a fabulous job following that, uh, and, but a little bit in, his, in Reagan's shadow probably doesn't quite get the credit he deserves, and certainly. I I put Reagan up there with FDR as
0: the two transformative presidents of the I hope the Bush 41 alumni have a plan um, that they're ready to spring. That Come the time when he passes away, he'll be 94, I think, this summer. uh, So he's not going to be with us for for very long. Uh, I hope that there's a plan afoot to really explain his legacy, because you can see the media running with what a good and generous, decent man he was. Um, But in terms of accomplishments, that gets glossed over very fast by the nature that he was a one-term president. So.
1: I think that's right. I think um, it's it's very easy to do journalistic history. Yes. Which is you judge things by what was popular, who won, who lost, not what they did, not what did they inherit, how they dealt with it, what came up, what did they do, what did they leave to the future. Right. Uh So, um, and presidents like quarterbacks tend to get credit and blame for a lot of things on their watch. Correct. They try to take credit for the good stuff and shift blame to others for the bad stuff. There's an old joke that uh, in the transition from President Carter to President Ford, uh, pardon me, from President Ford to President Carter, President Carter asked President Ford for um, what advice he'd give him. And he said, well, I'm going to give you three envelopes. The first said open only in case of a catastrophe, the second only a case of a disaster, and the third, uh, only in the case, uh, you know, hell's, yeah, hell's descended on you. And so he opens the, f- so that all happened to President Carter and he opens the first envelope and it said, blame me. And then <laughs> things got worse. President Carter um, uh, had, you know, had a lot of stumbles um, and a right. lot of misfortune, some of which he did a couple of good things. There was some deregulation, which was sensible in trucking, for example. But he uh, he stumbled and uh, didn't understand economics very much. He Apparently had a very high IQ, but not much common sense right. uh, and not a whole bunch of economics. So uh, he had this happened again. He opens the second envelope, which is sitting in the resolute desk in the Oval Office. And he holds it, you know, takes it out and opens it. Up and says, Blame the Federal Reserve because inflation is heating up. You remember we right. got so here we are, double-digit inflation. Uh, uh, you know, he went on TV and said the Fed should lower interest rates deal with inflation, the exact opposite of what it does. So there's a panic on foreign exchange markets. The dollar's collapsing. We have to send the undersecretary of the Treasury around to foreign central banks to prop up the dollar. So all this is a disaster. Then he loses to Ronald Reagan, the most conservative of the Republican challengers. He thinks that's really a catastrophe for the country. Remembers that third envelope, pulls it out, holds it up to the skylight in the Oval Office, uh, holds it up to the lamp, and it says... Prepare three envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> so presidents inherit a lot. They get an inbox. President Obama, for example, who, who I think did a, a, mostly a poor job on the economy and economic policy. He did some good things. Mostly on balance, I think he didn't do very well. But he inherited the recession and financial crisis. He didn't create it. You have to understand that. and and give them some leeway in what they were doing. But I think he mishandled it, made the recovery much slower than it should have been, and kept unemployment much higher than it would have been if he had followed more sensible policies. Uh, And he's left a legacy. So President Trump's getting a lot of criticism now for what they're calling massive deregulation. And mostly what he's doing is rolling back excessive in many cases, illegal regulation and right. executive orders. Uh, some of those regulate, some of the other regulations Obama put in were declared illegal, nine nothing, by the Supreme Court. So um, he's trying to mostly roll that stuff back uh, to something more sensible. Now you don't want this thing to swing so far the other side that whatever uh, sensible regulation or is is washed away as well. But we have an excess of regulation, uh, a lot of regulation that's inflexible and too costly.
0: Let's talk a bit about Trump and the economy. I don't know if there's such a word as Trumponomics, but let's talk about what's happening under his watch. The National Economic Council, There is a new chairman announced today of that, Larry Kudlow, Uh, no stranger to the Hoover Institution. He's been a Hoover Media Fellow. I don't know if you've been on his radio show or not. Yeah, Uh,
1: several times. He's a friend. John
0: Taylor has been on. Um, It comes at an interesting time, right after the tariffs announcements, and right on the heels of Donald Trump taking a meeting with Kevin Brady, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, and a couple of Republican senators, and announcing that it's now a good time for phase two of the tax cuts. I don't know how you could do phase two right now, just given the short window between now and the election. I don't know the appetite in Congress, Michael, given that they have to at least do technical corrections to the last tax cuts they just did. But I'd like your assessment on what's going on with the economic mindset in that White House with Cone out, Cudlow in, Trump talking tax cuts, Trump's doing tariffs. Give me your assessment of what's going on here.
1: Well, Trump is a, an unusual president in many ways. Really? And he has very, <laughs> well, you know, and uh, he has a different, obviously, management style. Right. And he has, uh, there's, you know, it's been an intense year or for, uh, 15 months. Mm-hmm. And Naturally, some people leave at this time or sometime in the second year is a time of, typically a time of turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, whether Gary Cohn left because of the tariff decision, I kind of doubt. I think he sort of knew where, Trump's, where Trump was likely to head in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think he was planning on leaving after a time in any event, and he mostly was, uh, thought that what he wanted to do was get the historic tax reform and tax reduction through. Mm-hmm. And he did a very good job of that. I met with him in the White House uh, And I think he was very conversant with all the economics issues and did a good job of working closely with the relevant committees and leadership in Congress. So he deserves a fair amount of credit for that and for some of the sensible deregulation that the administration supported. Uh, Obviously, he thinks of himself as a free trader. and He opposed uh, what Trump did. But every uh, advisor uh, has some things uh, that they propose or they advocate or feel strongly about, that the president, for whatever reason, moves in the opposite direction or against. Mm-hmm. I said last time I agree. Uh, a few minutes ago I agree with eighty percent of what Reagan and Bush did. Right. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean I oppose the other twenty. Some of it, you know, I thought could have right. been done better. Uh, some. There's a small percentage I oppose. So here's but what, but here's my point is. Right, let me just finish right. this. My point is that there's no senior administration official mm-hmm. that has ever had the president in the end agree with everything every way they want, okay, uh, and everybody knows that going in. Um, I think highly of Larry Kudlow, I think is uh, knows a lot of economics, he was uh, an official in the OMB in the Reagan administration, uh, he's been talking about the economy and financial markets on television and radio for a long time. Um, and his instincts are very good. lower taxes, control spending. Um, he's a free trader, fortunately. Uh, what, I think, what I think is important to understand about Trump that is somewhat different from his predecessors, among the many things that are different from his predecessors, is that when he makes when he does something, and I think he he likes this, you can't be quite sure when it's what he really wants Mm -hmm. or it's an opening bid in a negotiation. Right. Or even just his latest thought, which may get revised. But especially whether it's an opening bid in a negotiation. So I think his view of doing this on trade is he's going to get these other countries to give us some reciprocity, uh, for example, China on auto tariffs and so on. So... Whether that's true, whether that will succeed is another story. But I think that's the way um, that I think Larry probably understands this. And he'll fight to keep good economics at the center of Trump's policy. Mm-hmm. And I think he will win more than he loses. Uh, but you know that's, that's true in every administration and perhaps, perhaps there's more, uh, more differences because Trump isn't a classic Republican. Right. He, he has some, str- some instincts and some views that are very closely aligned with classic Republican economics and some that are opposed.
0: Yes. So I tracked down an interview uh, with you for not too long ago, and you were asked about the economy. And here's what you said. You suggested first, a quote, a more modest hand of government in the economy than we had in the previous administration. So let's go back to regulations you were talking about. You also said, quote, and I would support some and reject others of what the current administration is trying to do. You also added, the next thing I would try to think about is to have a more balanced trade and immigration policy. Yeah. So, if in theory the president wants to get into phase two of a tax cut, this is an invitation to do a lot of things at the same time and not just cut taxes. So you, Michael Boskin, what do you recommend to the White House?
1: Well, I think that the corporate tax cuts, the business side of the tax cuts and reform, was good. Was Mm -hmm. it perfect? No. But it's the most historic change. Our, our business tax rates were way out of line globally, and they were certainly influencing the international location of investment to our disadvantage. So I think they're going to help the economy. I think they've already started to. I think the anticipation of them is valuable. Uh, so that's that's all to the good. The personal side I thought uh, was not so great. Um, mm-hmm. it, there were some good things in it, some things that were not so good. And whether they can revisit that is we will see.
0: Uh, so, I think that, specifically what Michael Saltor.
1: Well, um, I think the major problems I have with it were that we moved to um, more refundable credits, mm-hmm. um, and when you have more refundable credits, you're removing people from the tax base. So we now have almost half the population paying little or no income taxes. So-called negative filers—they get money back or they pay nothing. That means they have no skin in the game in a vote on increasing government spending because they're not going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So I think that is—I I think that's been uh, a mistake going too far in that direction. Although each individual time we've done it is for a sort of humanitarian or worthy cause. You know, take some relief off people raising children is certainly a worthy goal. Um, you know. All the other things, Earned Income Tax Credit was supposed to be kind of a version of the old Milton Friedman, James Tobin negative income tax, and give people cash and get rid of the welfare bureaucracy. Well, we've reduced welfare, but a lot of other stuff has sprung up in addition
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that has become kind of the substitute for formal welfare, uh, and that's all a big problem, in my opinion. We need we need to take a fresh look at all that and. Focus the government on doing the things we need government to do and have them have the resources and the ability to do them Well, we've had a lot of sprawl in the government every time there's a problem There's supposed to be a government solution to it even when that government solution winds up being counterproductive So so I would say control of spending the big thing in my opinion and the, the big kahuna So to speak is entitlements mm-hmm. social security medicare and medicaid are gobbling up the budget they're growing at unsustainable rates They are already pressing other uh, essential functions of government. They have pressed defense. We had the sequester in defense. uh, Our defense and national security was damaged by years of uh, of inadequate spending and uh, and, and too many restrictions on what it could be spent on. And recently relieved for two years. We're not gonna be back to that soon. And I would say on trade and immigration, I think I, I'd like to see more uh, trade promotion along with the uh, perhaps tougher stance on negotiations. Mm-hmm. I'd also like to see uh, the kinds of things I think President Trump moved in the right direction on his immigration proposal. And it's kind of shocking if you go back and look at all the things leading Democrats said about it. He wound up f- to the left of o- Barack Obama and his proposal. He was going to help two or three times as many people, give them a, a Path to permanent citizenship, not just temporary residence, and uh, and the Democrats balked at doing sensible immigration reform that every uh, almost every other country does, which is have immigration based primarily on merit, not on very extended family ties, having distant relatives coming in, uh, and so on. So I think that uh, I think he moved in the right direction. I think it was unfortunate that the Democrats rejected it. But they're in a state now where they reject almost anything Trump
0: said. Exactly. Trump could say today's Wednesday and they try to pass a resolution saying today wasn't. It reminds me, uh, Bush 41 once had a lament about his media coverage. And he said, where's well, the extent of the problem with the media is that I could go out of the Potomac River and walk on water and the headline the next day would be, Bush can't swim. Yeah.
1: Well, that's true. There were he, he Any Republican was going to get bad press coverage uh, from the mainstream media, which is quite bad. Uh, quite has become quite biased, despite right. its um, its uh, in, insistence that it is not. Uh, it, it's quite remarkable when when I read a newspaper now, I I'm, uh, things I know really well. I'm kind of shocked at how they're presented by the mainstream media. But any Republicans can get bad bad press, but especially President Trump because he's unorthodox, because he's um, he's not uh, you know a suave elite and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's he's getting even more. Now, I think that um, we want to be careful of making sure what comes out of the White House is more, is accurate. Uh, Not, you know, every president to a certain degree is hyperbolic about their achievements. President Obama was, while he was soft-spoken, was perhaps the most hyperbolic Mm -hmm. I've seen before Trump. And um, and so you you discount a little bit as political rhetoric, but I think you have to be accurate about facts.
0: There might be somebody listening to this podcast who wants to be like Mike. They want to get information like Michael Boskin. They want to understand the world the way you do. Where do you turn for information? Where do you turn to for news?
1: Well, um, information and news uh, have a different meaning than when I was a young person. (laughs) Uh, When I was uh, a young person, I think that there were greater standards of accuracy in the media. Now, in, uh, in former mainstream newspapers, uh, you know, that we used to think of as newspapers of record, I trust the box scores and the sports page. Um, but I, I now have a great appreciation for my old friend Tim Russert, who used to do Meet the Press once told me that every story in a newspaper and its positioning and its headline and its opening are there because someone wants it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that has become uh, more and more true as the proliferation of the media has continued, as people have more access to more places, uh, to more sources of, I'll call it, stuff. Information, I think, should be a higher standard than a lot of what's out there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and with social media and the internet, we have lots of stuff, lots of stuff amplified. Some of it's half-life is a nanosecond. Right. Um, But I tend to I tend to read several newspapers, uh, catch a little bit of uh, of different uh, Sunday shows and the like, and I use my experience to triangulate from what's being said to what I think is likely to be true given what is said. So I'll still you know I'll I'll read you know I think the Wall Street Journal tends to be more accurate, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know I'm like 90 plus percent congruent with their economics on their editorial page. What so, you write for. Yeah. Yes, sure, but even the stuff I don't write, yeah. I, I, mo- I agree with most of what's on there and, and, their, and their editorials, um, uh, overwhelmingly. But um, the Wall Street Journal, I think's coverage of the news tends to be more accurate. The New York Times, I think, after the move from senior Salzburger to junior and since then has just descended into uh, politicizing its coverage. Uh, mm-hmm. and. So I read it understanding that, and I kind of try to strip that away to get to what eventually gets said as factual that I can check with some other source.
0: Now, one thing you did as a younger man was you attended the University of California at Berkeley, but yes. you're, you're a New Yorker by birth, aren't you? I
1: was born in New York. My parents moved to Los Angeles when I was five. I didn't get a vote. So
0: raised in Southern California. So you saw California in its glory, yep. the Gilded Age. Uh, why Berkeley?
1: Well, I wanted to go away. Mm -hmm. get out of the house as a 17 year old uh, so to speak and uh, at the time uh, my family had very modest means Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to go somewhere expensive and we there was less financial aid for people of our of our situation Mm -hmm. and and lower uh, and lower income and there was a um, there both financial aid from the institutions, less government support, and so on. So I think it would have been quite a financial burden on my parents uh, if I had gone to an Ivy League school, for example. Mm-hmm. So I thought Berkeley was a terrific university, that I could get a very good education there. It was away, it was close enough. In-state tuition was very small. Small at the time, I got I got a scholarship to help support me, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would pose very little financial burden on my parents, and that's the primary reason I went there, along with the idea that I'd get a very good education, which I did.
0: And this is Berkeley during the Brown and Reagan years? Yes. Pat Brown, not Jerry Brown.
1: Well, this is Berkeley from 63 uh, from, uh, to 67 undergraduate, 67 to 70 graduate. And then you also got a PhD from Berkeley, right? Yeah. Right. In so yeah. Okay. So this really. I went, to, I went to Harvard for four days for graduate school, but I ran into all these eighth and ninth year graduate students. I came from very modest means. I wanted uh-huh. to finish quickly, get a job, you know, support yeah. myself. So I went back to Berkeley and I was
0: able to get my PhD in three years fortunately. Okay, so four days at Harvard was enough for you?
1: Well, you'd go back there and teach once, but. Um. <laughs> All
0: right. So you're attending Berkeley in the fabled age of California, which we become more nostalgic with each passing year for the great California in the 1960s and Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father, building schools and building roads and transportation. Let me ask you this question, Michael Boskin. Under the People magazine guise of who wore it better, let me ask you which quote, who said it better? Donald Trump, quote, about California. They have the highest taxes in the United States. The place is totally out of control. Or, Gavin Newsom, our lieutenant governor, now seeking to become the next governor, quote, for the world's sake, the sun now rises in the west. We are America's coming attraction. Well,
1: I think a fair rendition is that they're they're both kind of exaggerated. Okay. I think uh, California has a lot more problems than most people are aware, particularly most people in the San Francisco Bay Area, Mm -hmm. most people living on the coast, most people, uh, highly educated people people related to technology and some of the other Mm -hmm. leading industries of California. We obviously are the uh, headquarters of the technology world with Silicon Valley. Um, Many of the great names in Silicon Valley are immense global brands, Apple, Apple, Google, Facebook, Facebook, Mm -hmm. Oracle, Intel, etc. However, um, it's not generally appreciated that California has a real inflation-adjusted, disposable after taxes, but including transfer payments, Mm -hmm. income per capita below the national average. California has by far the highest poverty rate in the United States when you adjust for cost of living, for example. So we've got big problems. We have very strange priorities that belie common sense. there's a lot of great things about California, but we have a lot of strange parts. Jerry Brown has been hawking a- and on, with horrible governance, immense delays, giant cost overruns, in its, or even in its early stages, an idiotic boondoggle that he continues to call the bullet train or high speed rail. Well, by its own admission, it's not high speed anymore. They've had to downgrade it to use a lot of existing rail, so it's blended speed. It's not going to be so fast if it ever gets from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Secondly, they're way behind schedule. They drill into Hatchapi Mountains, an area that's never been mapped, and they have seismic problems, so they switch where they're going next. This is a boondoggle, and the other day when he said he wanted to bring President Trump from who was l- inspecting walls, wall prototypes in San Diego to Fresno to look at high speed rail to see the future. This is a nineteen seventies technology
0: yeah.
1: high speed rail. It's updated some. By the time it's supposed to be ready in the twenty thirties and forties, people are going there's gonna be driverless vans going up and down the state. This is a great news, it's, it's,
0: it's a great point. The day after Brown uh, the day before Brown, or two days before Brown makes that uh, da- challenge to top, a report comes out, Mike. And the report, first of all, revises the cost of high speed rail at about $77 billion. It was once sold to us as a $33 billion deal, yeah. which means if you read the five print, it could, oh, by the way, maybe go to $98 billion, So you know how these things run. It's going to be over $100 billion. They move back their production schedule to 2033. And you're right, by the time that thing gets completed, if it ever it does, Elon Musk's going to have a Hyperloop going. People, they're going to be autonomous cars. Google is now working on short commuter planes. The world's going to be moving on, literally.
1: Absolutely. But the point I want to make is contrast that with his his appointees on the California Water Commission Mm -hmm. rejecting 11 requests to spend a billion dollars that the voters already approved as a bond measure for additional water storage. Mm -hmm. These are his... uh, claiming there aren't enough benefits to justify it. Right. We're back in a drought year again. This will be the fifth year and sixth that we've been in a drought. We have this more or less the same water infrastructure, although decaying some, as we did when we had half the current population.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so juxtapose that. $100 billion on something we don't need that probably won't work um, that will be a big white elephant. Divert money for a long time. Will there's only one high-speed rail system in the whole world that doesn't run a large operating deficit? So I we'll have to be subsidizing it after the hundred billion of construction, right. and then, and then, building essential stuff that the voters approved to relieve the drought by capturing more water when it does rain, le- le- not letting it run into the ocean. Uh, they reject as not having benefits. It's just. You know, it's just, it's just fantasy, it just belies common sense.
0: And above that is the question of California's economy, which is a famously boom-or-bust economy. When times are good, like they are now, money comes pouring into Sacramento, mainly through the form of what? capital gains taxes. uh, The stock market. When times are bad, Sacramento goes dry in its budgetary hardship. You've been watching this, and you wrote about an article for Hoover, uh, Hoover's Yurka magazine and it's a summarized all this. What, if anything, has the state done, Michael, to get us out of the boomer bus budgeting? In fact, you and John Cogan have a clever phrase for this, don't you?
1: Yeah, we call it a casino Casino budgeting. Casino budgeting. I think it's it's made things worse. Um, Only in California do you have a seven-year retroactive tax, temporary retroactive tax increase that's extended for another temporary 12 years. Right. Okay, so 19 years of temporary tax hikes. Mm -hmm. That's almost three biblical cycles. Right. Okay. So... um, uh, what's happened is we've raised tax rates so high in the desire to get a quote progressive tax system, which is the most progressive, the highest top rate in the country at 13.3 percent. That went and we tax capital gains, unlike uh, th- the country which which taxes capital gains at a lower rate than mm-hmm. other sources of income. Uh, we taxes ordinary income. We have a lot of stock options here, which are taxes ordinary income. So. When we have a boom in the financial markets, particularly in tech stocks, money just flows in. We wind up in those boom years with 1% of the population paying half the income taxes, which are almost three-quarters of the state's budget. Back when Senior Brown was, uh, was governor, uh, they were more like uh, uh, 20 or 30%. So we rely excessively on that. Then when the stock market crashes, we have a recession, Revenue stopped flowing in, and they've budgeted to too high a spending level, assuming the taxes are going to continue going up. Mm -hmm. And Jerry Brown's tried to warn against that. He does it all the time. That's part A to his credit. Part B is he's not taken any steps, indeed has pushed uh, the higher tax rates. So he's he's left his heir in a situation where the next downturn is going to be conditional on the business cycle, even worse. Mm -hmm. And so in the downturn, we don't even have the resources to provide services for our most vulnerable citizens. And what do they do? Then they start pressuring the counties and localities and school districts, et cetera, to take money from them or to transfer people out of our state jails to county jails and things of that sort to offload them. So we wind up having um, having a complete mess. We should be budgeting to more or less the average level of revenues. Uh, that would make a lot more sense and it would make more sense for us to have a a less volatile tax system as you mentioned this commission that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger and the Democratic head of the Assembly and State appointed a bipartisan commission seven Democrats seven Republicans Mm -hmm. we came up with a proposal that would have uh, raised uh, as much revenue maybe slightly more some of it would be shifted to out-of-state residents lowered tax rates gave us a fairer more stable tax system Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was in the middle of all this, uh, all these budget deficits, and they couldn't get around to dealing with it. Right. So it was put off. At some point, we're going to have to get back to that. We have by far the most volatile revenue of any state. Mm-hmm. We have a small rainy day fund. Brown's added a little bit to it. But it's... Uh, a tiny fraction of what's needed to c- account for a very deep downturn.
0: Yeah, this was the Commission on the 21st Century Economy known as the Parsky Commission. That's right. Jerry Parsky, the chairman, you and John Cogan, of the Hoover Institution were appointees. It had two functions. Number one was to find a way to end revenue volatility and then secondly, modernize the tax system. Yeah. Because when was the last time California's got a tax cut? Uh, it's
1: been a long time. Pete Wilson did a small one.
0: Yeah. My old boss, Pete Wilson, did two tax cuts in the late 90s, so it's been 20 years since California has had tax relief. Absolutely.
1: Uh, there was a little group that George Schultz chaired that advised both Pete Wilson and, uh, and then subsequently Arnold. Right. I was on it and we had a... Um, it's like a gubernatorial uh, CEA. That's right. for, well, it was external. It wasn't external. full-time. It was an external advisory group. And uh, we had written a little report, Building a Better California, the mm-hmm. tax reform component. And we, we pushed this and Pete ran with it and was able to get uh, some reform and some reduction. Uh, but we are widely criticized. How could we afford a tax cut? Well, we see now, there's a, you know, what happened last time Jerry Brown was in office, we had, the, we had an analogous situation. That gov- the state kept running a bigger and bigger surplus. Mm-hmm. And George and I went up to talk to Jerry, and um, he asked our advice. He wanted, uh, uh, about whether we should, he should keep building the surplus. Mm-hmm. And neither of us thought that was a wise idea for many reasons. And he was said he was, that's, what he, that's what he planned to do. And uh, riding back, I said, so what is he going to do? He's planning to have a giant surplus so he can cut taxes and then announce the next day he's running for president. And George said, that's probably what's going to happen. But before he could, we got Prop 13. Mm-hmm. Because in addition to highly high inflation and wild fluctuations in property values and uh, rising rapidly rising property taxes and the tax revolt, the state had a big surplus. People are going to understand why we would run a big surplus when their taxes
0: were going up. Right. Uh, When do you expect the run on Prop 13? It's been, what, 40 years, 1978, it's been 40 years since Prop 13 came in. Uh, Every two years or so we have talk about a so-called split roll attack on it, which you go after the business side of it. Uh, Usually people back off of that, but sooner or later there's going to be a run on it because there's a lot of money in that initiative.
1: Well, you know, we we are close to a one-party state now Mm -hmm. the democrats have uh, have mostly have had on and off a supermajority in the legislature all statewide offices and in that circumstance where they have all pressure to spend more and do more policies that are uh, that require ever more money uh, that's likely to come back Mm -hmm. it is however the case that since prop 13 while there was a reduction at that time property tax revenues have gone up considerably because it's not that It constrained, you know, most houses have sold since then and have been revalued, have been remodeled, et cetera. And and similarly, on the business side, the new construction is done at then current markets. So it's not like it suppresses it. It, it, There's this notion we have the lowest property taxes in the country. That's not true. Uh, on On a per capita basis, we're in the 30s somewhere among the 50 states.
0: Right. You would not see a run on the residential side of Prop 13 because I mentioned there would be a Pitchfork Rebellion and half a Palo Alto yeah, you're would right. have if, to leave the state. If there is,
1: it'll, it'll be the so-called split roll. Right. Issue. So it'd be the business attack.
0: Let's try not to end this on a dour note, but you look at California. You have been here for a long time now. You've seen it morph over the years. In terms of getting this in front of the public's attention, in terms of the budgeting situation, the taxation system, the fragility of the state, the really fragile state that we live in, how do you get voters' attention on this?
1: Well, I think unfortunately it's easier to do in a crisis or mm-hmm. in an impending crisis than warnings about something that 's going to happen eventually, which Brown has been doing while he 's not been doing enough to offset it he 's been warning about it yeah uh, you know Churchill warned about the problem of disarmament between World War One and World War II and was ignored so right, the gathering pe- storm. people don 't like to. Um, worry about the future in that way and plan for it quite in that way in the in public budgeting so i think that's that's unfortunately a big problem so i think you just have to have ideas that are there so that when the time is ripe that you'll you'll push the debate toward good responses i've always thought there are two times when it's um, risky to make permanent economic policy during booms and during busts. Mm-hmm. So during a boom, everything seems affordable. Right. You, you don't anticipate that we won't have the revenue to pay for all that when times aren't quite as good or during a downturn. And in a bust, needs seem exigent. You can't imagine a set time when you're, you're going to need this program much less, and it should right. be titrated down or ended. So, I, you know, you have to be cautious in that, in that sense. And, you know, we've got a lot of, a lot of things that have been put in in those things. As Rahm Emanuel said in the early Obama years, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And they pushed exactly. through some bad policies in the name of dealing with the crisis, which probably made it worse. The, in the end, uh, we need to deal with this, but I also would want to end um, this, this podcast with the following that I wouldn't sell California short. Mm. We've, got, we've got big problems we're kind of sweeping them under the rug, not just in the budget, but, you know, we have a rapidly changing demographic. We should be talking about ways we can turn these things to our advantage. We're the first majority-minority state. We should be talking with half the population, uh, Hispanic and Asian. We should be talking about how to turn that to an advantage in a a global economy, rather than harping at each other about uh, short-run disruption. We should be talking about taking advantage of some of our natural advantages and dealing with the fact that uh, we have an opportunity to improve the situation of the less fortunate in a productive way, enhancing their skills, improving their education, rather than just throwing money at problems into systems that aren't working right now, schools that aren't working, that that are failing kids. There are many reasons this is going on. It's not just the school's fault, but we've got too many people falling behind. But rather than get into rigorous reform like that, it tends to be a debate of how can we tax more and throw money at the problems, and I think that's that's a very very unfortunate attitude. We need a big reformer. We've had you know we have the you know we've had these commissions and so on that make sensible recommendations, uh, but I think at some point we're going to have to get to a situation where the governor the legislature are going to have to say we're going to we're going to bite the bullet and makes a lot of reforms and set the state on a better permanent course for the first, for the next couple of decades rather than just live off the short-term gravy and worry about the next downturn when it comes. What
0: comes to mind is the BRAC Commission from the 1980s and 90s, where the federal government looked at the issue of base closing, base realignment closers, and there were two components to it. One was actually having hearings around the country and deciding what got on the list, but then secondly, forcing Congress to actually make cuts. And this is a problem, I think, with California that you've you've very smartly pointed out, Michael. We're forever having commissions, forever talking about reform, and then like with the Parsky Commission, they just get tossed in the waste bin. So there has to be some way to hold lawmakers accountable, just not saying we're going to talk about the problem. By goodness, we're actually going to, going to have a, a- session. Absolutely. You need
1: with it. You need, you need them to agree in advance they will be bound by the results in some way, or at least do an up or down vote and force them to vote on it rather
0: than just Precisely. ignore it. So on a rather cold, dreary day outside in Palo Alto, are there actually reasons to be optimistic about California.
1: Yes. I mean, let's you know we do have – we're the center of technology. We have a creative workforce. We've right. been – Historically, a less socially ossified culture than the the east, the East Coast and uh, and South, where many people, uh, Midwest, many people emigrated to California from before the, or in addition to international migration. So I think that that, you know we had long been uh, the harbinger of good things. We've long been uh, a beacon of upward mobility and so on. Uh, But we need to. Understand that there's this Gordian knot there. It's just it's not just the budget. It's uh, the the entrenched powers, uh, the teachers union t- resisting education reforms that are sensible. It's uh, it's uh, public employees in general uh, resisting change, uh, using technology in a way that makes more sense. Uh, having uh, thinking of our education system as system wide, we have students in uh, in our our uh, uh, state college system that takes six years to get a bachelor's degree because they c- say they can't get courses they need right so we wheel electrons around the grid why can't we wheel units around the state college system so kids who are can't get a course at San Francisco state can take it at San Jose state we need we need to start thinking of creative solutions like that and including uh, technology and integrating that to keep the quality up and uh, make the state a lot more efficient in how it spends money, mm-hmm. with the result, with with the goal of having results, outcomes, not measuring by how much we spend, how many people are lifted out of poverty, how many people get an education in four years mm-hmm. rather than five or six, and so on.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope you get the call to go to Sacramento and have a one-on-one with the next governor and talk about these things.
1: Well, I'd be happy to. I've advised most of the governors of California since I've been here, uh, since I've been a professional economist, and uh, it's been a rewarding, at times frustrating, but unbalanced balance, a rewarding experience.
0: Very good. Michael Boskin, I enjoyed the conversation. Same here, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dr. Michael Boskin and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Michael Boskin, are you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter? He's shaking his head no, and he's a wise man for doing so. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Lots of good stuff coming up on climate change, millennial impact on future elections and Trump's relationship with the right. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution.
1: Thanks for listening.